For Monday, May 18th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, early data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show COVID-19 hitting racial and ethnic minority groups harder than others. What this infection has done is basically ripped the sheets off of the basic inequity, structured inequity by race in this country. Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones, an epidemiologist with the Morehouse School of Medicine and the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, joins me to discuss why some people are getting sicker from COVID-19 and are more likely to die from the disease. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. COVID-19 has only been with us for a few months, but we're already seeing the disproportionate impact the disease is having on people of color. Early data from the CDC show black people more likely to be hospitalized from the disease and more likely to die. Here to talk about this data is Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones. She's an epidemiologist with the Morehouse School of Medicine and the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Dr. Jones, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. Even though we don't have a lot of data at this point about who this disease is affecting more, it does seem like the early indications based on the data we have is that people of color are more affected by this disease. Just to start, reflect on that a little bit if you can for me. First of all, I'd say that in December of 2019, there was no human on this planet that was immune to the virus. And so the early talk was that this was going to be an equal opportunity infector. And in fact, it's true that if opportunity were equally distributed and if exposure to risk were equally distributed, then there really would have been no way that we could slice and dice the population and find any group differences in terms of the proportions of people who were infected or the proportions of people dying. But what we saw very early on, as soon as people started asking the question, is there something differential going on by race? Uh, And that's my first awareness came when Milwaukee County uh, presented their data stratified by race. We saw that Black Americans were being infected at twice the rate compared to their representation in the population and dying three times as often from COVID-19. So what this infection has done is basically ripped the sheets off of the basic 
inequity, structured inequity by race in this country. And racism is the system that structures opportunity and assigns value by race in this country. So long story short, COVID-19 has just exposed structural racism in this nation. The fact that maybe we're seeing this situation expose some of these health inequities, is that surprising to you? So, no, it's not surprising. What the virus has done is it's located sort of the weaknesses in terms of how society has structured itself, and it's zooming in there. But the only job this virus has is to replicate itself, to reproduce. And even though we're seeing these disparities early in Black and Brown and Indigenous communities, because we are the ones who are more exposed, less protected, more burdened by chronic diseases because of the living in chronically disinvested and neglected communities, and with less access to healthcare. So that's why it's gone there first. And those things are the result of racism. But that doesn't mean that it's going to stay there. And I think that when it became clear that black and brown and indigenous folks were being more affected, I think that some policymakers thought that that was always going to be the case. And so, you know, we can't you know, interrupt our economy for those people. Maybe those people are just going to be the cost of reopening the economy. So that's when you started seeing calls to liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, you know, and I think that these reopenings, which are very premature, right, because we do not have the data to know even where we are today in terms of infection rates, but these reopenings are going to make it clear that even though black and brown and indigenous people were affected first, it's because we affected early, but we're not going to be the only ones affected. The CDC has released some preliminary data on racial breakdowns of cases and deaths, but even that picture is is very incomplete. What do you make of that, the fact that we still don't have great data here about who really this is affecting? Certainly we have some data, but we don't have a full picture. I think it's unfortunate, and I think that we need to collect data along all axes of inequity. What do I mean by axes of inequity? Opportunity is differentially distributed by race, sometimes by gender, by zip code. These axes of inequity, we need to ask the question, is there something differential going on by race? Anytime anything new enters our environment, because we already know that the conditions for health are differentially distributed along those axes. For people who are in denial that racism exists, that question would not occur to them. And so perhaps it's a manifestation of various states of awareness or denial of racism that is manifesting in terms of the collection of our data stratified by race. I also wonder if it's just a question of the lack of investment that we've had in our public health infrastructure for some time that this data wasn't collected and that many state public health agencies and even the CDC has found themselves uh, maybe struggling to really wrap their hands around this pandemic in any kind of basic way. What do you make of that idea that we just don't have robust enough systems to maybe do the basic jobs, let alone collect data on the way this pandemic is affecting certain groups of people? Well, I will agree with you that we have severely underinvested in public health. I used to work at CDC for 14 and a half years. And, and so I, I know that to be true. And so, yes, CDC does not have the full investment 
that it needs. Also, the public health voice has been muzzled throughout, even when the only things we still know in terms of affecting the course of the pandemic are public health strategies. So I will give you one that we have underinvested in public health chronically, two that even for the public health infrastructure that we have, that voice has been muzzled. But I will also say that data on race are typically collected by the healthcare system. And so to report those data does not require more data collection. So, so the, the burden for public health to report the data by race is not a primary data collection burden. It's an analysis burden. I'm wondering how you navigate and how you think you know, people should navigate if we know that this disproportionately affects people of color and indigenous populations, how do you message that without having people come to the conclusion that if they're not one of those groups, it's, it's not something they need to worry about? Well, first of all, it is disproportionately affecting those groups, but it is not only affecting those groups. And that's clear to the many, many white families that have been affected by having loved ones die. So the disproportionate message is an important one because we need to provide resources according to need, but it's not solely those populations. And I think that that is the message that has been lost by the general population. And also, although we in medicine and we in public health know that there are no biological differences between so-called races, that race is a social category, it's a social classification of people Still in this country, there is a highly prevalent idea that there are some kind of biological differences between people of color and people who are living as white. There are not. But those differences make people feel, for example, that if black and brown and indigenous people were the canaries in the mine and they died, people might say, oh, but I'm a parrot. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to just march into that mine still. When in fact, as I said earlier, we are dying disproportionately because of structural things and disproportionately early. But the virus is going to, until we are immune with a vaccine, the virus is going to keep finding its way into any susceptible person. The virus's only job is to replicate itself. So those people are misguided in thinking that they are safe. I'm wondering, too, what you make of social factors here too, the kinds of jobs that might be more readily available to certain groups of people, the way that certain groups of people live. I mean, there's been ideas theorized. Maybe Northern Italy uh, was so hard hit because as a country, Italy is, is a lot older than most other countries and they're a very social country. Do those kinds of factors play a role here? It's the only role. <laughs> so it's not, it's not race. So when I talked about people of color being more likely to be infected. I said it was because we're more exposed because we are occupationally segregated. The residential segregation by race turns into educational segregation by race. I'm not saying every single person, but at a group level, right? Which then turns into occupational segregation by race. So you have more people of color on the front lines as 
orderlies or home health aides or, you know, taxi drivers, Uber and the like, bus drivers. And in most cases, without adequate paid sick leave to stay home to take care of somebody else or just take care of ourselves, you know, without those savings to say, well, I don't need that job anymore. And then in terms of the communities in which we live, if we are infected, often returning to homes that are small homes, maybe with many people in the home, many multi-generational families, and therefore infecting others in the home, or even if it's not in your home, in communities where a lot of other people are infected, where the actual prevalence of the infection is higher, so you are more likely to encounter somebody who is infected. So it has everything to do with social factors. When I say racism, racism is a system, and this system has structured our lives in very divided ways. We are living in a dual reality, and many times people who are living in the white middle-class reality have no idea how people just across town on the other side of the tracks or whatever are living. No idea. We've seen indications that individuals with pre-existing health conditions, whether that's obesity or or heart disease or, or diabetes, are more likely to have worse outcomes of COVID-19. And my general sense is that these are chronic conditions that disproportionately, in the same way that this pandemic has, disproportionately affect people of color. How do you kind of balance or think about balancing out this kind of acute problem of this pandemic with these maybe more chronic health issues that potentially really make people more susceptible to the coronavirus? First of all, racism is the root cause of all of the race-associated differences we see in health in this country. Just as I have described racism being a root cause of the COVID-19 disproportionalities we're observing, it is also a root cause of the excess diabetes prevalence or the excess heart disease prevalence, stroke deaths, all of that. So there is much documentation about racism being the root cause of all of these race-associated differences that we observe in, in health outcomes. So what you say is true. The increased diabetes, the increased obesity, all of that does not just so happen, right? It is, these conditions are overrepresented in black and brown communities, but they are not making us more likely to get the disease. But once we do get the disease, it's making us more likely to die from it. The things that are making us more likely to get it are the fact that we're more exposed and less protected. Once we get it, we're more likely to die because we're overburdened with these chronic diseases and we have less timely, less respectful, less whatever access to health care. If this pandemic is exposing these inequities, how do you hope that this conversation can continue after this, this pandemic? So um, you are correct that every now and then, and COVID-19 is not the first time that we got, the country sort of got jolted awake and said, oh, maybe there's something differential going on by race, because that happened with Hurricane Katrina, when people were wondering, well, why are all the black folks up on the roofs, right? So every now and then, the nation uh, arouses from its slumber in terms of acknowledging racism and says, oh, maybe something differential is going on here by race. Maybe racism exists. And yet, there are three kind of cultural stances that make it easy for people to fall back into the somnolence of racism denial. The first is that we are very narrowly focused on the individual in this country, which makes systems and structures either invisible or irrelevant, seemingly irrelevant. 
The second is that we are ahistorical. We act as if the present were disconnected from the past and as if the current distribution of advantage and disadvantage were just a happenstance. And the third is our endorsement of the myth of meritocracy, the story that goes something like this. If you work hard, you will make it. So I think that we need to address those societal barriers. So my job is that this national campaign against racism that I launched in 2016 when I had the platform of being the president of the American Public Health Association, that we continue on this national campaign against racism, which has three tasks, to name racism. Good to talk about race, but until we talk about racism, that's the system part, then we will not be able to address it. Then we need to identify the potential targets for action, the mechanisms by which racism is operating by asking the question, how is racism operating here? And then the third task is to organize and strategize to act. We're here to talk about kind of the role that race plays here. What are your thoughts about about that when we think about the future of this pandemic and how it plays out? Well, I'm hoping that this nation will not be complacent. I'm hoping that this nation values all of its people equally. I guess what I'm saying is I'm hoping that we have a commitment to health equity and social equity, where the three principles for achieving health equity or social equity are valuing all individuals and populations equally, recognizing and rectifying historical injustices, and providing resources, not equally, but according to need. So I guess what I'm saying is that I hope that the goodness of America that the understanding that we are all human and that we are all, in fact, in this together, and even though people of color are being disproportionately impacted and impacted early, being impacted first, that we actually really, 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 really are all in this together. And that just on the other side of town, there are people who are just as kind, funny, generous, hardworking, smart as I am, but who live in very different circumstances, and that I honor our common humanity, and I want to protect their lives just as much as I want to protect my own. I hope that that kind of ethos will prevail. Otherwise, it could be quite bleak. Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones is an epidemiologist with the Morehouse School of Medicine and the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us with questions, comments, or controversy at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.